Hello and welcome to the Spinal Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And thank you all for listening. Uh, I just want to let you know, we're going to try something different uh, today. And not in terms of the content of what we're doing. Uh, Dr. Carvelis had this great idea that we should put outtakes at the end. So if you stay and make it all the way through the legal disclaimer, uh, you're going to hear a great outtake of, which was actually not really an outtake, but our sound check. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think it'll be worth your while. I didn't realize this was really happening, but okay. <laughs> I thought it was a joke. <laughs> but today, uh, we're going to actually present a case of a recent patient that came in and um, kind of t- spin that off into a little bit of uh, education. Uh, so, Dr. K, why don't you start with the case, and then we'll kind of talk about the things that uh, were, we thought were interesting about this. Yeah. And so this case, uh, this was a patient that uh, came into clinic uh, this this last past week. So a 54-year-old gentleman, uh, his comorbidities include chronic kidney disease stage 2, uh, diabetes type 2, uh, hypertension for which he's on an ACE inhibitor, a history of a transient ischemic attack for which he's on an aspirin, uh, 81 milligrams, uh, as well as GERD, and also depression for which he's on a uh, SSRI. He's uh, presenting with a moderate to severe medial uh, elbow region pain for uh, several weeks, which for, for which he's been taking ibuprofen uh, over-the-counter, but with his total over-the-counter dosage, he's actually taking 800 milligrams three times a day. Um, his baseline job requires uh, significant manual labor with lifting, and the pain is impairing his ability to perform tasks at work. That's one of the reasons he's taking such a high and consistent dosage. Uh, and he presents uh, with questions regarding management moving forward. And the specific question he asked me, which then led me to think about uh, uh, including some of the um, concepts we're going to talk about today, was uh, whether or not he should continue his ibuprofen long term and what the risk would be associated with that. So uh, in the context of that, some uh, key concepts and questions that uh, I wanted to make sure we uh, did a good job of addressing today is, uh, number one, what's the exact mechanism of action of NSAIDs we'll do as a review? Uh, What are the significant drug-drug interactions to be aware of? And that's why I like this specific case, because we have a middle-aged gentleman with you know, some common comorbidities on some medications that we see all the time on review of med lists that uh, may not necessarily, um, you know, send off super red flags when we review that med list, but potentially, uh, you know, they should in in certain cases, especially for someone taking such a high and consistent uh, dose of um, of NSAIDs. Um, So yeah, what are those drug-drug interactions? is there significant increased cardiovascular risk with NSAIDs and does that apply to all NSAIDs is another question. And lastly, are there situations, and uh, I think this would be a good conversation, we'll try to get through the talk uh, as efficiently as we can because uh, obviously, uh, um, and I remember in the last podcast, uh, Dr. Hovis had brought up uh, having you know more discussion between the two of us and, and uh, uh, as we all, uh, as hopefully you guys have heard from me say multiple times, you know, Dr. Hovez is a mentor to me, and uh, he his knowledge uh, base is uh, massive. And um, I, you know, I do want to make sure that um, <laughs> we're constantly getting more input uh, uh, from him because I do think I get a little carried away sometimes with it. I did just pay Dr. Carvelis to give me a nice shout out in the middle of the education portion of uh, today's events. So thank you, sir. I appreciate no, that. No, not true. It's just uh, speak, just, <laughs> just speaking facts. But um, 
so yeah, the sorry, the last thing is, are, like I said, are those those clinical situations where we are using NSAIDs, but we may be predisposing patients to more chronic debilitating pathology long-term? And like I said, that's one thing that I hope we'll have a little bit of time uh, to discuss at the end uh, with myself and Dr. Hovis. So <clears throat> real quick uh, definition, what are we dealing with today? So obviously NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, they're medications with anti-inflammatory, analgesic, and antipyretic properties, and their mechanism of action is predominantly through inhibition of cyclo cyclooxygenase, as well as some degree of effect through modulation of neutrophil function and modulation of cell membrane function. Uh, it's important to keep in mind that not all NSAIDs are the same. Uh, in the United States, we have at least 20 different NSAIDs. It's uh, important to understand the available literature on these NSAIDs because due to their different uh, properties, uh, there are significant uh, uh, variations in terms of the efficacy and safety uh, of these different medications. Um, just as a quick example, you know, with the different families that there are, when we think about some of the common NSAIDs that we use, like naproxen and ibuprofen, those would be considered uh, propionic uh, acids, uh, uh, whereas something like meloxicam, which we use all the time, is in the oxicam family. So, and those different families are going to have significantly different um, uh, uh, properties, not only in terms of their pharmacology, but also when we're thinking about their uh, safety and their efficacy. So, just being aware of that uh, fact. So, <clears throat> in terms of the uh, mechanism of action, um, uh, of uh, NSAIDs and as, as a quick review. Um, it, whenever we're thinking about mechanisms of action, uh, and uh, as we know very well in medicine, always understanding you know, what is uh, normal. Um, uh, uh, and so when we're thinking about the normal you know, injury inflammation that occurs in our body and then uh, how NSAIDs are going to impact that. So like I said, just starting with what is the normal inflammation and injury in our body. So when we do have uh, uh, cell injury and consequent inflammation, the first step is the release of the cell membrane phospholipids, which are then converted to arachidonic acid through phospholipase A2. And then as a quick note, obviously, uh, for us as providers, you know, we're going to be using NSAIDs quite a bit. We're going to be using corticosteroids quite a bit. So just as a quick reminder, corticosteroids act at the level of inhibition of the action of phospholipase uh, uh, itself and therefore inhibit not only the COX pathway, the cyclooxygenase pathway, but also the lipooxygenase pathway. And uh, consequently, obviously, they have the potential for a stronger anti-inflammatory and analgesic effect uh, relative to uh, NSAIDs. But obviously for the uh, purpose of this discussion, <coughs> uh, we are going to uh, uh, focus on the cyclooxygenase pathway which the NSAIDs act, uh, act upon. So the uh, just as a quick review, the uh, COX isoenzymes convert arachidonic acid first to the prostaglandins PGGG2 and then to PGH2, which subsequently undergo a series of sub subsequent reactions to ultimately produce five bioactive prostanoids, PGD2, PGE2, PGF2, PGI2, and thromboxane A2. And it's very important to remember that these bioactive prostanoids have a variety of cell-specific and tissue-specific actions through interactions with various uh, receptors um, uh, throughout the human body. Uh, and and uh, as a consequence, these prostanoids uh, uh, have an impact on a wide range of diverse and importantly, often opposing uh, physiologic and pathologic processes. So some just 
quick things to always keep in mind with these uh, uh, prosthenoids is we're going to have induction and also resolution of inflammatory response, protection and damage of the GI mucosa, promotion and inhibition of uh, clotting and atherosclerosis, and also uh, renal control of blood pressure and renal disease. So I want to take a second to point out that uh, when we talked about how we how in depth we're going to go into the mechanism of action for uh, non steroidal anti inflammatories. Uh, Dr. Carvella said he was going to try to keep it really brief. <laughs> so <all>. just <laughs> just a couple quick uh, specifics pertinent to I think pain management is that PGE2 and PGI2 increase the sensitivity of pain receptors in the periphery and enhance the activity of uh, various pain mediators. Um, and when we do have peripheral inflammation, PGE2 also increases. Uh, in the uh, central nervous system and contributes to the development of uh, central hyperalgesia. So um, now that we've reviewed uh, to some degree the process that NSAIDs modulate, getting you know back to um, the the direct definition of the mechanism of action of NSAIDs, NSAIDs primarily work by inhibition of prosthenoid biosynthesis. Specifically, NSAIDs inhibit prosthenoid synthesis by inhibition of arachidonic acid binding to the COX active site. And uh, important to keep in mind that this inhi inhibition is typically competitive and transient. Um, there are non-prostaglandin uh, mediated actions of NSAIDs, which I had brought up in the beginning. Specifically, these are uh, modulation of neutrophil interaction with the um, endothelial cells, uh, as well as inhibition of uh, nuclear factor kappa beta, um, which ultimately um, is going to um, uh, uh, change the level of nitric oxide. And as we know, in the setting of inflammation, nitric oxide is going to cause uh, vasodilation and uh, cytotoxicity and increased vascular permeability. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the main takeaways from this, just like any time that you're thinking about pharmacology, so med students uh, and pre-med students, this is kind of talking to you guys, you know, we, when we think about non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and what they do or what we use them for, uh, I think sometimes it gets lost all of the other ways that these medications work, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously this is a large laundry list of uh, things that these medications uh, or interactions within the body that these medications do. Uh, and so, you know, we're trying to use it to, you know, decrease pain and inflammation, um, but we also see that it affects so many other things. And so for all of you uh, medical students or people in training, really understanding that, you know, medications have so many different ways that they interact with different parts of the body you have to remember all of those different ways not just the one that you're utilizing that medication for yeah uh, absolutely and and uh so the last uh, uh, non-prostaglandin mediated action would be some component of anti-nociceptive action through the l-arginine nitric oxide cyclic gmp potassium channel pathway so um you know it uh, in terms of the different uh, two distinct um, isoforms of COX, you have the, and I'll try not to uh, uh, go too much into detail here, but the main things I wanted to emphasize is that the COX-1 isoform, as we know, is largely constitutively expressed um, throughout, the, throughout tissues, where the COX-2 isoform is more inducible. Um, so you know, in general, when we think about the therapeutic effect of NSAIDs, these are largely going to be due to that uh, COX-2 inhibition at the site of inflammation where there's the induction of the uh, uh, COX-2 isoform. 
Um, whereas many of the side effects associated with NSAIDs, uh, especially the GI side effects, are due to inhibition of the protective effects of the um, uh, prosthenoids produced by COX-1. So when we think about COX-1, like I said, it's constitutively expressed. It's uh, going to be present in the majority of cells and tissues, including the endothelium, uh, monocytes, um, uh, GI, epithelial cells, and platelets. Whereas COX-2 is more limited in terms of how it is constitu constitutively expressed, but uh, when there's inflammation, then that uh, expression of COX-2 is going to be uh, uh, significantly uh, upregulated. Um, and <clears throat> so uh, moving on, now that we've kind of covered the basics of uh, NSAIDs and their mechanism of action. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up was these drug-drug interactions, because as we remember from our patient uh, who uh, presented at the beginning, you know, being on ACE inhibitors and uh, aspirin and uh, SSRIs, um, obviously NSAIDs are going to have significant drug-drug interactions with numerous uh, medications. Um, one of them that I wanted to highlight, just because I think that you know, these patients present commonly to our clinic, um, uh, but like I said, it may not be the immediate red flag that we see. Obviously, you know, if you have a patient coming in on Coumadin and then they are taking an NSAID over the counter or you're, or someone has thought about prescribing an NSAID to them, you know, obviously that's going to raise a red flag for multiple reasons, including the fact that we know that NSAIDs can have a potential impact on uh, uh, decreased platelet uh, aggregation and as a consequence are going to have increased bleeding risk in a patient who's already on anticoagulation. Also, um, uh, NSAIDs are going to displace that Coumadin from the uh, being protein bound, and so it's going to increase the total serum level of Coumadin. So I've, those are the more obvious, I think, drug-drug interactions that we are all aware of. But um, there's a couple other ones that I want to emphasize that uh, may not uh, necessarily be in the forefront of our uh, thought process. So uh, SSRIs, because I think that's such a uh, common situation. As we know, pain and depression uh, are such um, a strong uh, comorbidity link there. So it is it is definitely not uncommon to have a patient coming in uh, with depression on an SSRI who has a significant pain process and now they're uh, taking an NSAID or we're thinking about utilization of an NSAID. So uh, like I said, it's just important to note that there is a drug-drug interaction there. And, and what that drug-drug interaction is, is that when you take a, uh, an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, you're uh, preventing the uptake of serotonin in, um, into cells and increasing it, uh, obviously, um, uh, in the serum. Um, but one of the areas where you're preventing the uptake of serotonin is also into platelets. And um, uh, platelets require, uh, or, or serotonin plays a, uh, an important role in platelet aggregation. So if you're taking an SSRI, you are going to have an increased uh, bleeding risk uh, associated with that. And then if you add a, a NSAID on top of that, now you have a significantly higher uh, increased risk of bleeding. So just keeping in mind that that drug-drug uh, interaction uh, does exist, and the literature does show an increased risk of uh, GI toxicity for patients on NSAIDs uh, as well as SSRIs. Um, the other drug-drug uh, interaction is uh, between NSAIDs and aspirin. So uh, again, very common patient, right? Because these patients with chronic pain oftentimes are patients with uh, cardiovascular comorbidities or history of TIA or history of prior stroke. So they oftentimes are on a uh, aspirin 81 milligrams or a full aspirin. And uh, it's not uncommon to have depression after stroke or it's not uncommon to have depression with pain or as we go through life. So you may have a patient who's on an SSRI and uh, uh, aspirin and now 
they may be taking an over-the-counter uh, uh, NSAID or you're thinking about utilization of a NSAID. So just being aware of that um, uh, interaction of NSAIDs with aspirin. So as a quick review, uh, as we know, the beneficial effect of aspirin is uh, its beneficial antiplatelet effect uh, for secondary or primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, which is a consequence of irreversible acetylation of the active site of cyclooxygenase in platelets, um, which is going to confer persistent inhibition of COX-1-mediated thromboxane A2 production and platelet function. Um, so there's bottom line is that there's uh, multiple studies that have shown that NSAIDs can all, um, uh, attenuate this uh, protective effect of uh, aspirin. Um, uh, there's multiple studies uh, from the Lancet in 2003, um, as well as uh, um, uh, as well as another study that uh, compared um, individuals uh, taking um, aspirin uh, versus individuals taking um, uh, lumericoxib for uh, uh, looking at a, a cardiovascular risk and essentially what they found um, was that for individuals who are taking, and I'm sorry, I presented that study a little differently, so looked at patients who are taking uh, ibuprofen uh, with aspirin or, or um, lumericoxib with aspirin and essentially what they found was that for individuals who were uh, taking ibuprofen with the aspirin that they had a, a significant increase in their um, composite cardiovascular risk. Again, going back to the attenuation of the effect of aspirin through the, through the ibuprofen. So <clears throat> the, uh, the um, last study that I really wanted to uh, bring up and talk about, because obviously it is a landmark study, um, before we uh, address our last concept of the use of NSAIDs in the setting of musculoskeletal injuries and inflammation and, and some considerations to think about in that setting, was this uh, large study uh, in, like I said, a landmark study called the Precision Trial, <clears throat> which was published in 2016 um, uh, in the uh, uh, New England uh, Journal of Medicine. And um, with, with this trial, essentially what it was was a large trial of over 24,000 patients. And these were patients with osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis who were at increased cardiovascular risk. And these patients were randomly assigned to either uh, celecoxib, ibuprofen, or naproxen. It was a randomized, uh, multi-centered, double-blind uh, uh, trial, and the goal of the trial was to assess the non-inferiority of celecoxib uh, with regard to the primary composite outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal uh, myocardial infarction, or non-fatal stroke. And uh, uh, essentially what that trial found, the, the major outcomes of the trial, was that number one, Celebrex at these moderate doses showed non-inferiority in regards to cardiovascular risk, and it had a lower risk of GI events, not surprisingly, um, than both other medications, and a lower uh, renal adverse uh, risk relative to ibuprofen, but uh, not to uh, naproxen. Uh, it was no significant difference there in terms of renal risk. So there's, uh, when we think about the take-home points from this study, obviously, somewhat reassuring in terms of showing the non-inferiority in terms of cardiovascular risk with celecoxib because I think that's something that we all are worried about when we're using a relatively uh, 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 you know, selective uh, uh, NSAID in the form of the uh, Celebrex or celecoxib and worrying about the potential increased risk of cardiovascular events. Um, and obviously, we all think back to 
um, uh, Vioxx, which was you know pulled from the market because of the uh, potential uh, increased risk of cardiovascular events. And so as a consequence, um, anytime using a uh, a selective uh, COX-2 inhibitor, you know, that's going to be in the back of our mind. Now, all that being said, I think if you listen to most, uh, you know, most individuals that um, either were involved in this trial and or, you know, have many years of experience um, in, you know, rheumatology or, or managing osteoarthritis or bottom line use of NSAIDs or even cardiologists, I think it's, it's important to take into consideration some of the limitations of this trial because, Although, yes, this was a very large trial performed over a long period of time, um, uh, you know, not unlike many other trials, there are limitations to it. Some key points was that there was actually a fairly large dropout rate in this trial, around 30% of patients. Also, very importantly, the doses, if you look at the doses of ibuprofen utilized, the doses of naproxen utilized, and the doses of silicoxib utilized, there's a strong argument for the fact that the doses of naproxen and ibuprofen were near max doses of those medications, uh, which was reflected by people actually having better uh, outcomes in terms of pain control with those two medications, in contrast to the celecoxib, which was used at, on average, about 100 milligrams twice a day, which I think a lot of providers would argue that that's kind of a sub-clinically effective dose. And since we know very well from research over and over again that uh, toxicity of NSAIDs is, you know, a direct function of the uh, dose of the medication and the duration of use of that medication. So um, there's an argument for the fact that there's going to be a bias introduced there because we're using relatively ma near max doses of the uh, ibuprofen and naproxen in contrast to the uh, Celebrex, which was uh, used at a, a dose that we may not get the clinical results that we are looking for. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh, but yeah, like I said, still a very, if, if for anyone who's uh, going to be utilizing NSAIDs commonly in their practice, a very important uh, trial um, uh, to be, to be uh, aware of. So <clears throat> the last, uh, uh, Dr. Hovis, before I move to our last uh, concept, any um, comments? <laughs> no, I, I was, uh, was going to give a little um, Summary, but I, I, we got we got one more before we kind of transition it. So go for it. Yeah. Um, so, so sorry. This is the last concept I want to bring up, and this is where I kind of want to have, uh, you know, even more of a back and forth with uh, Dr. Hovez is we have this patient. You know, when you have a patient who comes in with a relatively acute musculoskeletal injury, um, should we be using NSAIDs in that patient? And, and I think the literature's uh, a little conflicting, you know, not like, unlike many aspects of medicine, but the literature is a little conflicting here. But I'm just going to present a few trials that, uh, and then I'll present my typical approach to this patient. But, you know, the question would be, we know that inflammation, um, uh, especially early on in injury, is obviously serve, serving a very important purpose. So suppressing that inflammation with the use of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug early on in the healing process, is that actually going to set us up for more chronic uh, pathology long term? So some su studies that might support concern for that um, would include um, a study published in 2016, it was titled Ibuprofen Impairs Capsule Labral Healing. It looked at ibuprofen impact on labral healing, and uh, this was an animal model study. It was 66 rats that they had surgically induced labral injuries. The outcome measures were maximum load that the labrum could sustain prior to failure. And what they uh, found was that although the maximum load increased in both groups, obviously representing the healing process, that the, the load, the maximum load was statistically significantly lower in the NSAID group uh, compared to control. 
two other studies that would support this. So another study published in 2015 in the Journal of Applied Physiology. This was uh, uh, 114 rats with uh, Achilles tendon uh, injury, uh, again, surgically induced. They had healing stimulated by micro damage through essentially tendon fenestration, which is a technique we use uh, kind of in the regenerative medicine umbrella. Um, but they, essentially what they found after, the, after they uh, induced this uh, injury to the Achilles tendon and then tried to stimulate healing, they gave them either paracoxib or saline, these rats, and what they found was that there was a significant difference in peak force at failure between the two groups. So specifically, the saline group uh, sustained about 30 newtons uh, of force relative to around 20 newtons of force in the group that uh, received the uh, paracoxib. And so the authors concluded that NSAIDs impair the stimulatory effects of loading and micro damage on early uh, tendon healing. And the last uh, study was uh, by Dr. Brian and colleagues in 2014. They were investigating whether biomechanical uh, and histologic effects of uh, systemic ibuprofen administration on tendon healing are time dependent. And they, what they determined in their study was that within uh, one week, um, if administering NSAIDs, so specifically in their study ibuprofen, uh, within that first week of injury, that did result in detrimental effects of tendon healing in regards to tensile strength as well as looking at the uh, histology in, in terms of fiber organization. But in contrast, if the NSAID was uh, given after that first week, so at days 8 to 14, there was not a significant adverse effect on the tendon uh, healing process. Um, and sorry, the last thing, just to kind of, because obviously we talked a lot about, about a lot of different things in terms of, you know, the, um, uh, the how inflammation typically happens, how NSAIDs are working through COX inhibition, the fact that it's very important that we understand there's the con more constitutively expressed COX-1 and the uh, more inducible COX-2 expression and understanding the, the normal impact that these uh, these uh, important elements have on our body and and so when we utilize a medication that's going to uh, attend you know modify their effect understanding the repercussions of that uh, not just what we always you know not just the more commonly thought about um, impacts on the kidneys and on the gi tract um, but also uh, also in regards to cardiovascular risk and understanding that there's a uh, a lot of different NSAIDs out there, different classes, and that they have different uh, safety and efficacy profiles. Um, uh, in general, if, if you look at the American College of Rheumatology guidelines, as well as uh, the American Geriatrics Society guidelines and recent publishments, some of the key concepts are that, um, uh, so when you're thinking about using an NSAID, think about age, renal function, GI risk, cardiovascular risk. When it comes to age, uh, the American College of Rheumatology recommends that over the age of 75, you should really be thinking about using an alternative agent and or topical NSAID, not an oral NSAID for patients over the age of 75. When you're thinking about renal function, for patients that uh, have chronic kidney disease stage 3, so their uh, estimated GFR is between uh, 30 and 60, um, for those patients, you really want to be cautious with the use of an oral NSAID um, and, and obviously to avoid an oral NSAID in patient, uh, patients with CKD stage 4 or worse. Um, any patient with significant GI risk history of GI bleed being very cautious or avoiding use of uh, NSAIDs in those patients. Cardiovascular risk. So for patients with established cardiovascular disease, these societies actually uh, recommend to avoid use of NSAIDs. Um, uh, although obviously I think we see that commonly our patients with car known cardiovascular 
cardiovascular disease uh, potentially using these over the counter or otherwise. And then for patients who have uh, multiple cardiovascular risk factors to be, be very cautious with the use of NSAIDs. And one of the key take home points that's emphasized over and over again, no matter what talk or paper you read, uh, and this goes for many medications, right? Uh, lowest effective dose for the shortest of period of time is, is what we're looking uh, for for these medications. Um, so sorry to take a quick step back. So, uh, you know, for that patient, because I think it's an interesting discussion, you have a patient comes in who might have a, uh, you know, an, a more acute tendon or other, you know, uh, uh, musculoskeletal injury, and they want to, they ask you, oh, should I, you know, I'd be taking ibuprofen or, you know, an NSAID early on here. My, my typical response, and I want to hear Dr. Jehovah's typical response, currently based upon the literature that uh, is out there, and of course we're always trying to gather more information and, and uh, um, optimize our opinion, but currently I say you know, for that first week I really try to limit it to resting and icing. Um, I think that the ice is going to, you know, because uh, there is some, uh, you know, going to be some potential detrimental effect to that uncontrolled inflammation, but I think that the external application of ice can kind of prevent some of the detrimental uh, you know, effects and injury of that, but avoiding the oral use of the NSAIDs, especially for that first week, to help prevent any potential uh, setting up for long-term uh, you know, issues like chronic tendinopathy or, or uh, other chronic uh, musculoskeletal pathology. Yeah, I mean, I think you're drawing a kind of uh, a nice distinction between acute and chronic pain, right? And so that's that's where the literature tends to differentiate things. Uh, I mean, a lot of the um, regenerative medicine, as you point out, orthobiologic research, uh, and even some of the initial theory had come from some of uh, some of this work about how you know you're able to actually obtain healing for structures, right? And so for you know, you, you take one side of the, the spectrum being orthobiologics and trying to induce inflammation to induce healing, uh, and the other side of the spectrum being um, NSAID usage for an acute injury where you're actually trying to stop that cascade. And I think it, you know, obviously the the, the theories are counter to each other, um, like by definition. Um, and, and we are seeing that, you know, if you're utilizing anti-inflammatories uh, acutely, that you may not get uh, as good of benefit, right? And so in, in the acute management of a lot of these issues, I agree, it, it seems to be ideal to try to stay away from anti-inflammatory use if at all possible because you wanna allow that uh, structure to heal as best as, as possible. Um, I think it's, it's a little counter to the chronic use uh, of anti-inflammatories, right? Which, I mean, or not, I shouldn't say chronic use, the, the use of NSAIDs for chronic pain, um, which is a, a different topic in discussion than the use of NSAIDs for, for acute pain, right? And so that kind of brings us back to your patient that came in. You know, so you have a patient that has you know, more chronic issues, um, that uh, chronic, uh, other chronic diseases, but also more chronic pain, right? It's not a pain that's been there for a week or two. It's a pain that's been kind of ongoing for, for a much longer period of time. And I think that's a, a much more challenging discussion because, you know, for that more chronic pain, there definitely are patients that do well. And I mean, if you, even if you, you know, you use American College of Rheumatology or the uh, uh, geriatric societies, you can also look at, you know, the World Health Organization's uh, um, pain ladder, like, and nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories uh, are at least considered standard of care for chronic pain. 
um, and for for better or for worse, I, I guess would be the the, the discussion um, in that regards. But it is something that you know if you look at the overall side effect profile for anti-inflammatories versus you know many many of the other choices of medications, they're relatively benign as long as those patients don't have this all, all of the other uh, chronic diseases that you talked about and that that can interact with. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, no, I think that's an excellent point because, you know, even though we brought up all these things to, uh, to be considering and to be concerned about, which is obviously important, the, yeah, the, obviously these same societies, American College of Rheumatology, if you look at their, like Dr. Hovis said, if you look at their guidelines on how to treat NEOA, you know, uh, hand and wrist osteoarthritis, uh, hip osteoarthritis, oral NSAIDs are still going to be in that uh, algorithm. And, you know, obviously in the setting of all the concerns about opioids, uh, you know, I'm sure many providers are thinking, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> what am I supposed to do with these patients? But, you know, part of that is, you know, that's where really that multimodal, uh, and I know obviously you hear this all the time, and, uh, but it is, you know, it is so important, especially as we get into this elderly population with comorbidities. That's where the image-guided procedures um, uh, and, you know, using all these other different modalities of treatment um, can really be effective to minimize the leaning, you know, how much we're relying on oral medications long-term because, you know, regardless of the oral medication we're using, you know, none of these are going to be completely benign and they're all going to have their own risks. So, you know, as much as we can optimize those non-medication uh, therapies, um, we can hopefully optimize the health and decrease the risk of the patient. All right. So bring us back full circle. So uh, we have a 54-year-old gentleman, multiple comorbidities, um, you know, on a lot of different medications. He's taking, you know, large dose, max dose ibuprofen, right? You said uh, 2,400 milligrams a day mm -hmm. of, of ibuprofen. Um, so he comes in, we kind of reviewed mechanism, uh, all of the different ways that the medication works and the things that it interacts with. He was on two medications that, that uh, can have some uh, uh, effect with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, he's not, doesn't quite fall into the geriatric population, but obviously a, a gentleman that has other chronic diseases. So uh, how did you counsel uh, this young man? Yeah. So for this specific patient, essentially what I did was I said, okay, look, at this point, you know, given your other comorbidities, given the other medications that you're on, I wouldn't recommend the ongoing use of the high dose oral uh, NSAIDs. So we transitioned him to a topical diclofenac. He ha actually hadn't had formal physical therapy specifically focused on his uh, sp uh, specific diagnosis. He had actually hadn't had a formal diagnosis uh, either uh, yet. So essentially we uh, diagnosed him with um, medial uh, uh, epicondylosis or a golfer's elbow and um, uh, sent him to physical therapy specifically to focus on that. And essentially my plan for him is, you know, with the use of the topical NSAIDs, relative rest and physical therapy, um, we also gave him, you know, some modifications uh, as much as possible for his work, like I said, which include manual labor. But essentially, uh, when we see him for follow-up in about six weeks, if he, you know, if he's really struggling and continuing to not do well, we'll start to introduce the uh, possibility of doing some uh, regenerative, because obviously the data is probably the best for, you know, our regenerative medicine techniques, including uh, PRP or, you know, tendon fenestration or, you know, these other modalities of trying to uh, improve uh, more uh, long-term tendinopathies. So bottom line is if he's not responding to the topical NSAID and the physical therapy, then we'll start to consider uh, some of those options, uh, including but not limited to PRP for the tendinopathy. 
Not gonna lie, that's pretty anticlimactic for how long we took to talk to get there. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but but the but the right choice, right? Yeah. And and so I mean, uh, obviously, I think the <laughs> the 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 discussion to uh, transition off of max dose ibuprofen for a guy with multiple comorbidities um, and, and trying you know simple uh, simple I guess simple is probably the wrong word but things that should should probably have come earlier in uh, the algorithm physical therapy topical anti-inflammatories um, modif- uh, activity modification but you know to be able to take that step back take that more uh, rounded approach um, you know I I, I think. I think the if, if I was talking or presenting this case uh, to medical students or to you know young residents, um, the way that I would say this is all of the things that you congregated together for the purpose of this podcast are the work that goes into even mundane decision making, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that is what gets lost for all of us who practice medicine uh, is that every single decision that we make, even if something as simple as Dr. Ravel saying, "Don't take ibuprofen, go to physical therapy, use a topical anti-inflammatory," is based off of loads and loads of research, right? I mean, you, I think you quoted about ten different studies that brought us to a very simple answer, um, but you know. For all of those people that are listening, but you know, in in that in the training regard, that is, that is the compendium that you develop for yourself over time, right? That simple decisions are based on significant literature, and then as you learn more and more, the, what you consider a, a simple decision become changes, right? And so, obviously, if you talk to you know a cardiologist or you know any specialist, you ask them a question that would be out of the league of either one of us as pain physicians. They're going to think it's a relatively simple question because they have the, this uh, amount of uh, learning and education and studies that they can quote. Yeah, and and I, and I absolutely agree with that. And the last thing I would say is that kind of being aware, you know, specifically, obviously, we're talking about NSAIDs today. So being aware of NSAIDs and its impact not only on body but on other medications. So like Dr. Hobbes said, it may be a very routine, common uh, decision to whether or not to use NSAID for these patients, but keeping in mind that these patients are often elderly patients with cardiovascular comorbidities. So it's not a, uh, I guess one of the points I wanted to drive home with this is it's not a small thing that you uh, think about and utilize other options than an oral NSAID for a patient who's on aspirin for secondary prevention. Because like we talked about, you know, that actually can have a huge impact on their uh, cardiovascular risk and ultimately potentially the mortality because uh, uh, utilizing that uh, NSAID can attenuate the the cardioprotective effect of aspirin. So like Dr. Hubbard said, it seems like a simple decision of, hey, let's not use this, let's use topicals, let's send to physical therapy, but you're actually, and that's one of the things I've, like I have mentioned, I think multiple times, one of the things I love about pain medicine is it's uh, uh, interventional pain medicine is it's it, it, how it uh, inter, you know interacts and crosses over with so many different aspects of um, med- medicine and uh, the patient's health ultimately. Awesome. Well, if somehow you guys made it all the way to this point of the podcast, uh, thank you. This is probably one of the longer ones that we've done in a while. Um, and But thanks for making this long. Stay tuned for those legal disclaimers and for my thoughts on this one of the topics. Now for that legal disclaimer, this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.
it is? Yeah. Uh, I think it's a dumb article. <laughs> but it's like, we don't occur 